I'm Frances Callier. And I'm Angela V. Shelton. And we're Frangela. You know what you need in your life? Hmm. The Final Word Podcast. Yes, you do. That's right. It is the final word on all things political and pop cultural. Where we make real news real funny. Where we inspire you so you can hashtag resist. Subscribe and get a new episode of the Final Word Podcast each week. It's the news we think you need to hear. That's right. We think you need to hear it. Okay. Yeah, it's what we say so. That's right. And because all we do is give, every Thursday you can listen to our hysterical podcast, Idiot of the Week. We round up the stupid because you know what? Somebody has to. Okay. All we do is give. MSW Media. I'm Greg Oliar. Four years ago, I stopped writing novels to report on the crimes of Donald Trump and his associates. In 2018, I wrote a best-selling book about it, Dirty Rubles. In 2019, I launched Prevail, a bi-weekly column about Trump and Putin, spies and mobsters, and so many traitors! Trump may be gone, but the damage he wrought will take years to fully understand. Join me and a revolving crew of contributors and guests as we try to make sense of it all. This is Prevail. Rule of law is not just some lawyer's turn of phrase. It is the very foundation of our democracy. The essence of the rule of law is that like cases are treated alike. That there not be one rule for Democrats and another for Republicans, one rule for the powerful, another for the powerless, one rule for the rich and another for the poor, or different rules depending upon one's race or ethnicity. To serve as Attorney General at this critical time is a calling I am honored and eager to answer. So yeah, now it's clean up on aisle 45 time. And for a long while yet, it is going to be clean up on aisle 45. Hello and welcome to Clean Up on Aisle 45. It is episode 58. It is Wednesday, February 23rd. Yeah, and right off the bat, you know what we do. We thank our new patrons, but I have to admit something, and uh, AG, this is 100% my fault. Our good friend, comedian Aaron Trahan, has been a Hall of Fame sponsor, and my Excel spreadsheet lumped him in with the normies. And you know what else I found out about is that he he's, he he does some work at Madhouse Comedy Club. I yeah. where, where I am past and I have done several Ooh. shows. You are you I was going to ask have you been to the Madhouse Comedy Club in San Diego? So I guess the answer to that is uh yes, huh? I was the first comedian past there as a paid regular as a matter of fact. Really? Oh, well, so anyway, that's twice the reasons we feel bad. So, comedian Aaron Trahan, that is at Comedian A-E-T, at C-O-M-E-D-I-A-N-A-E-T. And he says, come to the Madhouse Comedy Club in San Diego. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, if I ever get to San Diego, I'm uh, I'm going to check him out. Yeah, yeah, d- definitely. It's a, it's a great club right downtown where the old Hard Rock Cafe used to be, mm. across from Horton Plaza, where the old Horton Plaza used to be, I should say. It's I, I've revamped. never been to San Diego. It's, it's high on my list of places I want to visit, and not just because you live there, but mostly because you live there. <laughs> Thank you. Now, uh, we have some other patrons we need to thank, right? Yeah, so uh, we want to thank our new patrons. So thank you to Shan Wislick, Craig Pullman, Astrid, James Barr. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm a little skeptical on that one, but, you know. Uh, William Moran, Paul Toppins, Blackula41. I love Blackula. Uh, and finally became a patron to tell you, this is, this is rough, the Steelers are the GOAT, the Kings of the AFC North, and Baltimore and Cleveland can suck it. Oh, <laughs> so I'll pass a, that sentiment on to my mom, who's a Steelers yeah, I mean, fan. <laughs> yeah, not only not only will we read that, uh, B, I gotta tell you, with with the Steelers hiring Brian Flores, like I, eh, I, I still hate you, and and I hate <laughs> this patron, and I will root against the Steelers if the Steelers were playing, you know, the Adolf Hitler All Stars. Like I'm gonna root for a comet to hit the building, but like <laughs> it. it, it eh, like hiring Brian Flores, it's uh, it, it it looks really good, man. 
I hate to say that, mm-hmm. and I hate you for making me say that. They so. do have cool uniforms. Yeah. All right. Uh, anyway, <laughs> uh, also a big thank you to BT, Deborah Duke, Vic Calderon, Roseanne Ricci, Molly Jane Sear, Jill Zimmerman, Sill, and John Bilderback. Woo, John Bilderback. Okay, thank you all so much. And remember, you too can join these fine individuals and get a heartfelt shout out just like this one. The ad-free feed for the show, plus all our special goodies over at patreon.com slash aisle45pod. That's what that, you know, aisle 45 pod for as little as a buck an episode. Yes, and now on with the show. <laughs> so our A-Block story is how the Biden administration has now approved $2 billion in loan relief for more than 107,000 borrowers through borrower defense. That was increased by last week's announcement that nearly 16,000 federal student loan borrowers who were misled by for-profit colleges, including DeVry, right, will have $415 million in debts erased. And that's according to the U.S. Department of Education. Um, these borrowers, as I said, attended schools like DeVry, ITT Technical Institute, and other for-profit schools and sought relief under 20 U.S. Code 1087E. Yeah, so 20 U.S.C. 1087E is a federal law that allows anyone who has a federally secured student loan, now that's whether it is subsidized or unsubsidized, to excuse their non-payment of the loan, right? And the criteria by which you can do that are set out in subsection H. That's entitled borrower defenses, right? So this is referred to as a borrower defense action, right? So what you do is you file an action, you say, pursuant to 28 U.S.C. 1087E, uh, subsection H, I have this defense. I shouldn't have to repay this loan. And that section tells the Secretary of Education to set forth precisely the defenses that can serve as to forgive loan repayment from a school. And, and the idea, right, what they were delegated by Congress to do was to come up with ways to determine when borrowers were fraudulently induced to take out money to attend a school. Yeah, yeah. And of course, this happens to veterans a lot. Oh, yeah. Part of the veteran community. And of course, the former guy appointed Betsy DeVos, apologist and profiteer uh, for for for-profit schools as the Secretary of Education. (laughs) And and so when students try to get their federal loans excused on the fact that they'd been defrauded, DeVos just issued a blanket denial for all of those requests. Hundreds of thousands of borrowers, because in DeVos's eyes, let the buyer beware, I guess. Yeah, look, and the case against DeVry is pretty open and shut. De- DeVry runs ads, and come on, you've seen these, right? They're, they're the ones that are on in between the Emerald Air Fryer infomercial <laughs> and Cindy Crawford's Ageless Beauty, right? Those are the ads that say that 90% of their graduates find jobs within their field within six months of graduation, which, you know, look, like that's a pretty good sales pitch for an adult college when you're watching at 3 a.m. after the Emerald Air Fryer infomercial, right? The slight problem is that we cannot verify whether it's true or not, which is to say it is not true. Yeah. And after years of litigation, DeVry admitted it lacked data to substantiate that claim, the 90% claim. Uh, The Trump Department of Education, of course, didn't investigate that at all. But the (laughs) Biden DOE found that DeVry's job placement rate was instead roughly 58%. (laughs) Which doesn't sound as good. No, that's not, that's not as good as 90. No. <laughs> and that, quote, more than half of the jobs included in the claimed 90% placement rate were held by students who obtained them before graduating from DeVry <laughs> <laughs> and often before they were even enrolled. <laughs> yeah. So that's so that's some padding. Right. So, look, Allison, you mentioned years of litigation that the primary the lead case here is a case called Sweet versus DeVos. Right. And it paved the way for last week's announcement. In that case, uh, class action was certified on behalf of defrauded borrowers seeking to have their student loans forgiven because they were misled by claims like the 90% claim. The case reached a tentative settlement in early 2020, but was subsequently invalidated when a court determined that DeVos's Department of Education was just denying applications summarily under the appropriate administrative rules. And again, to dig into those, those are 34 CFR sections 285.606 and 285.222. And and CFR is the Code of Federal Regulations. Basically, the way this works is 
Congress delegates to an executive branch agency the responsibility to promulgate rules to enforce particular laws. The agency then, when they promulgate those rules, those are codified in the Code of Federal Regulations. So DOE had promulgated rules that said uh, if you are defrauding students, then that's a ground for which uh, you can seek borrower forgiveness. And even if you're the, the head, even if you're the secretary of education, if there are known promulgated rules by your department, you have to follow those things. Right. And those existing rules set out 11 different criteria for what count as misrepresentation of the school to potential students and include stuff like lying about. And I'm just going to go super quickly. There are 11 of these. Right. But hmm. lying about one, your passage rates two, your employment rates, three, the select the, the selectivity of the school four. The accreditation of the school. You'd be surprised how often that comes up. <laughs> Five, the transferability of credits. That's another one, right? Like schools often will give courses that uh, people will try and, and transfer out. And, you know, real schools will be like, you know, sorry, we don't we don't take credits from that school. Mm -hmm. uh, six lies about employability. Seven lies about financial aid. Eight lies about the amount method or timing of payment and tuition and fees. Nine uh, lies about whether those programs are endorsed uh, by colleges, high schools, educational organizations, et cetera. Ten uh, representations regarding, and this comes up a lot with like uh, your diploma mills, right? The institution's size, location, facilities, equipment, or the number availability or qualification of its personnel. And, you know, that that's that's really come into play in the uh, Google Maps era where you can, you know, get a satellite picture and see that 1164 Main Street Suite 604 is actually a post office box at a, you know, USP, you know, at a, at a, at a <laughs> you know, FedEx box or whatever. <laughs> and then 11, uh, the prerequisites for for enrollment. So all of those things, they're already promulgated rules. The Trump administration was unable to, to promulgate new rules that are like, eh, you're kind of on your own. Uh, and DeVos was just like, yeah, well, you know, rules, rules, schmools. I'm the uh, I'm the secretary of education. Yeah. 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 And, and she agreed. DeVos agreed to apply those criteria. But mm. uh, shocker. She just lied to help out her friends in their for-profit college sector. Mm -hmm. Yeah. According to federal data, more than 85,000 applications were awaiting adjudication in January 2021, and another 137,000 had been denied based on DeVos's interpretation of that rule. Uh, <laughs> her, her interpretation, somehow it didn't fit into any of those 11 fucking things. Yeah. And, and so what this ruling does is clear out some of the backlog, right? 16,000 of those cases. Now, I want to be clear, this is not enough, right? But if you have lefty friends who are repeating the often Russian troll bot generated memes of like, well, you know, Biden isn't doing anything about student loans. That's not true. Okay? Nope. Can confirm the, my student loan was <laughs> canceled. The, the past administration set up these huge roadblocks, these enormous, enormous backlogs, and this administration cares. Now, right, should they be doing more? Yes. Yes. And that's why we should continue to hold hold them to, to the, you know, hold their feet to the fire. We should continue. To, but, like, we have to acknowledge Take when the they've w. made, yeah, $2 billion in student loan forgiveness that you would not have if you stayed home in 2020 or if you voted for, you know, the Green Party or whatever, <laughs> these, these are Party these are real differences that 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 make a real change in real people's lives. And I, I'd like to have more of that. Yeah. So there you go. That's yeah. our uh, that's our a block story. Same Z's. And uh, you know what? Why don't we take a quick break here, Andrew, mm. and we'll get back to uh, we'll come back and talk about some more ridiculous fun from John oh, Durham, wait. your favorite. <laughs> All right, everybody, stick around. We'll be right back. Hello, I'm Mr. Plow. Are you tired of having your hands cut off by snowblowers and the inevitable heart attacks that come with shoveling snow? Then call Klondike 53226. Call now and receive a free T-shirt. Call Mr. Plow. That's my name. That name again is Mr. Plow. 
All right, welcome back. So, Andrew, you and I have been covering <laughs> the John Durham fiasco for a while now. Yeah, a bit. <laughs> and last time we discussed his ridiculous motion for an inquiry into conflicts of interest. <laughs> and the first two sentences were his, please look into these conflicts of interest. And then the rest of it was a bunch of crazy ass conspiracy <sighs> theories that were worded in such a way that they could be interpreted to sort of mean whatever you wanted them to say. Uh, and it was not only totally unnecessary, but I think personally an abuse of the court system to spread vague conspiracy theories about Hillary spying on the Trump White House. And, and honestly, I don't see this as at very different from the 60 plus lawsuits filed by Kraken et al. Uh, to, no. to, to use the courts to, to spread incendiary stuff for the media to pick up, honestly. I, I, I think that analogy is directly on point. And I don't know if... <laughs> I would like, file for sanctions if I were Sussman's attorneys, honestly. You know, sanctions is a high bar. We should talk about that in a future episode. But like, it... it I mean, I had to come out. I know you talked about this on your show. Like, I, I had to come out on opening arguments later in the week because we, we recorded our analysis of the Sussman, like, motion to whatever... On on Monday, right? Last yeah. week's show. And it did not occur to me that that pleading was going to be used by, you know, the Alex Joneses and Tucker Carlson's and like, you know, shitheels of the world to say things that are not even in the pleading. Right. Yeah. It's no, just, you and I just went over it like this is stupid and yeah. it's and it's unnecessary and all this stuff is dumb. Um, but, you know, it, that you know, there there was a great big backlash uh, from from regular media into this, wasn't there? Yeah, and and so it's worth noting, Durham himself responded to the backlash from you know real journalistic outlets by saying that uh, uh, basically he didn't say that the Hillary Clinton campaign was spying on the White House during the Trump administration, that's the media's fault, right? Mm. He acknowledged that the observation of the EOP occurred only when Obama was in office, but but something else also happened, and that is Michael Sussman's lawyers filed a motion to strike all the vague and irrelevant information in Durham's filing that the right wing glommed onto and then, you know, also made additional stuff up. <clears throat> yeah, they were calling it the Durham report. It wasn't yeah. <laughs> a report. It was a filing. in a right. <laughs> yeah. uh, and, and within the past week, not only did we get a Durham motion to dismiss uh, the he, Durham wants to di dismiss the motion to strike. Right. Right. But we also got a motion to dismiss the entire indictment from the Sussman team. So we got a couple of motions to dismiss and strike stuff uh, from both sides. And guess what, Andrew? The motion to dismiss that Sussman's lawyers filed, to dismiss the whole indictment, goes right to the heart of one of the reasons we said the indictment was toothless, and that's the materiality issue. Mm -hmm. Remember when we talked about how Durham alleged that Sussman's lie, quote-unquote, that he told Jim Baker... <laughs> might have impacted the way that they analyzed the data at the FBI. It might have made things go a little bit differently. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and so our conclusion was that Durham failed to establish materiality in his indictment. And Sussman's lawyers have now brought that front and center by declaring that the only way that the FBI action can be swayed is that if, if the information you give them causes them to open a case or stops them from opening an investigation. And Sussman's filing says, and this seems pretty plausible to me, that regardless of who paid for or introduced the information in this case, the FBI would have opened an investigation. And therefore, Sussman's alleged lie is not material. Yeah. And, and Sussman's lawyer said Hillary Clinton could have walked into Jim Baker's office herself with a thumb right. drive. And it still doesn't matter. But Andrew, isn't it true? Motions to dismiss 1001 charges based on lack of materiality rarely succeed. And, and if so, why didn't he mention any of the other problems you and I discussed, like all the, def the deficiencies mentioned in the Bill of Particulars? You didn't even tell us what the charge is. Is it 1001A or 1001B? You didn't even tell us what the lie is. You can't, you know, I'm I was kind of surprised that he filed this motion to dismiss before he got his answers back on the on the on the Bill of Particulars. Yeah, I I agree with that. I mean, this feels uh, premature to me. Right. So. 
let's unpack the question. Maybe he's got more motions to dismiss up his sleeve. Can you file? uh, Can you file unlimited (laughs) motions to dismiss? So you can continue to raise um, any dispositive motion, right, up until the dispositive motion deadline, right, or until you've waived those, right? So uh, he he may have more up his sleeve. This isn't how I would have done it. I just I just want to be honest with you with, with, with respect to that. Right. So let's unpack the question that you've asked. In general, it's a it's an uphill climb uh, to win on lack of materiality for a couple of reasons. Right. So the first is that remember that for a 1001A, which I again, uh, I would have liked to have had my motion to strike adjudicated to kind of figure out if this is a 1001a but i i think that is right i think that's where they're going and right. under 1001a not oh, an, go ahead. not an omission yeah because according to durham he had told jim baker that he was not working on behalf of any client which would be mm-hmm. the lie and that's not a lie of admission if he hadn't said anything that would be a lie of omission but they're ancillary anyway right yeah that is exactly right right so 1001A makes it a crime uh, to go before the the government, right? Any matter within the jurisdiction of the executive, legislative, or judicial branch of the government of the United States and knowingly and willfully do, do one of these three things, right? Falsify, conceal, or cover by any trick, scheme, or device a material fact, okay? That's not an allegation here. Number two, this is the allegation, A2, make any materially false, fictitious, or fraudulent statement or representation, or make or use any false writing or document knowing the same to contain any materially false, fictitious, or fraudulent statement or entry, right? So uh, you, you look at that and go, okay, this is probably an A2 claim that says uh, you materially came in and said, oh, I'm just a concerned citizen but I'm actually a representative of the Hillary Clinton campaign. So the reason why that kind of claim is really, really hard to adjudicate on a motion to dismiss is right. How do you, how do you determine if that was knowingly and willfully right without looking at the actual evidence the witnesses the individuals that are involved right right and of know? course Sussman's lawyers say that that it, it wasn't willful and right and anything like that um and that he certainly didn't unknowing or knowingly do it and he certainly didn't not knowingly undo it whatever it was you know the, the the kind of legal language but you know it, it the, i think the point that Sussman's lawyers bring up is never in the history of the universe has anybody gotten a 1001A charge, uh, you know, for an ancillary lie when reporting a tip to a law enforcement agency. Yeah, no. And and that is a really, really good argument, right? That that you cannot look at uh, the, the history of this statute and find somebody that fits into, you know, the uh, the conditions under which you know, this is supposedly seeking an indictment. But again, right, you know, you could just say, OK, well, you know, the fact that we haven't tried to prove that in the past doesn't doesn't foreclose on us proving it in the future. But like with I I, I tend to think right, the way in which you summarized the problem with this allegation from the outset really goes into a thing that is, uh, again, you know, remember from Bill Barr and Michael Flynn, like this is one of their favorite things on earth is prosecutorial discretion, right? Like the prosecutor can decide, oh, okay, well, I've I've looked at the conditions and I, I think there's not enough evidence here. Uh, there's there's not a reason to proceed. Um, and and by and large, right. Uh, unless, right, as in the Michael Flynn case, there's obvious, uh, in, uh, you know, evidence of corruption. But but without that, right, mm-hmm. um, the, the cases that they wanted to piggyback on are, are cases that say, yeah, no, it, it prosecutors get to decide, get to get to say, like, yeah, I'd rather not bring this case than bring it and lose. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, yeah. And that's sort of why I would have per- personally 
waited until I got a response from my bill of particulars, found out what was being charged, what the actual lie was, and then maybe argue a motion to dismiss for materiality based on those facts uh, and other things that you and I found wrong with the indictment initially uh, as well. So uh, I, I guess what I expect to happen here is, is pro- here's, here's my little my little beans I'm going to put on this. Mm. A judge will deny this motion to dismiss. And then Durham will turn in his bill of particulars, respond to the bill of particulars, and then perhaps another motion to dismiss based on those facts will be filed. Uh, but either way, uh, I think what's I think the standout thing is is if this thing goes to trial, it's important to note that you they've never been able to successfully bring a one thousand and one charge to an ancillary red herring <laughs> lie in a in a tip because and they they put this in. In his filing, too, the Sussman lawyers are great, by the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They say, look, this can chill future people wanting to give tips to law enforcement. Like, if they lie on some side thing, that's going to chill that. It's It's got First Amendment implications. It's got it, they've got all sorts of implications uh, if if this is successful uh, for the for the judge to, you know, kind of mull over and see if they're, you know, they want to dismiss the entire thing and even risk it going to trial and put and have it be victorious or have a conviction happen to to chill those things and make it harder for lawyers to talk to law enfor- enforcement and all those other negative implications uh, for for process. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And and uh, you know, as as you point out, typically the way in which 1001 prosecutions go forward uh, is when the ideal case, right, is you have someone who knows that X did it and then interviews with the FBI, calls up, gives an anonymous tip and says, why did it? Right. And they're trying to throw the government agencies off the case. Right. That the that false tip cases are sort of the paradigmatic case of 1001 cases. Yeah. And, you know, to have the argument be, well, you you gave us the right tip, but you gave it for the wrong reasons um, is, uh, I, again, I'll say it this way, right? I represent in my day-to-day practice civil clients all the time. And as you might imagine, sometimes when there are business disputes, those business disputes may have a criminal component to them. And I have seen it all, right? I've seen people locked out of their businesses. I've seen uh, the business van stolen on Christmas. Uh, That was a fun call that morning, right? Like, and generally, right, my clients will say, okay, well, now you're going to call the police. And I will tell them the same thing that I tell them that I'm going to say here on the air, which is we can do that. But the police, when there is a civil dispute among business co-owners, they're they're not interested. Right. Even if even if it's 100 percent clear and they, you know, they stole your van on Christmas, which actually happened to a client of mine. The police say, you know what, like there's just we don't think that the kind of testimony you're likely to adduce here in these sorts of cases is reliable because. You guys hate each other because you're fighting over a business, right? Yeah. So, you know, it it come back to us later when this is resolved or in a, in a separate incident or whatever. But, you know, that, that we're not going to let you make this. We're not. And, and, and I often wish it were the other way around. But but uh, but but I think there's a reasonable rule there that says we're not going to let you use the criminal process to gain advantage in a civil case. And that's the mindset that I take into these Sussman allegations, right? Mm. Which is, you know, is it, it, the FBI does not need our help, right? In terms of somebody who is there represented by counsel on behalf of a law firm that works for the Hillary Clinton campaign to say, all right, we know where this is coming from, you know? Right. This is the kind of thing that that they are well coached, uh, that their career has taught them how to adjudicate. And the idea that, you know, Sussman misled anybody in the U.S. government with respect to sharing those allegations is just 
it's it's, it's silly. Yeah. And, and I mean, there's, you know, there's other things that you and I found ridiculous about this entire thing. And, and one of them is that uh, Durham didn't even go and ask the Hillary campaign if if Sussman was working on their behalf until two months after he indicted him. Right. So, so like, <laughs> what the fuck is that? Aren't you supposed to figure your shit out before you uh, file an indictment? Or were you just trying to get it in under the statute of limitations wire, by the way, which was that same week? Uh, you know, you could just file it under seal, bro. Um, and then, of course, you know, Baker, who is the star witness uh, for... Can't uh, for, remember. <laughs> yeah, he, he, he and he testified to Congress that he that he doesn't know if that was said or not. Uh, I mean, there's so many other uh, reasons to, to go through this. But uh, I, I want to ask you about this other document, uh, Andrew. The Durham motion to quash the motion to strike, the cross motion okay. to strike, the bulk of... So basically, Sussman's lawyer said... Look, we get the inquiry for conflicts of interest, which we've agreed to waive, but the rest of that bullshit needs to be stricken. And so they filed a motion to strike. And and then Durham filed his response. Um, and it's, he, you know, he, he blames the media, again, for, yeah, well, for misunderstanding right. <laughs> his vague accusations that implied Hillary was spying on Donald Trump, which that's not real. And in his effort to explain to the court why his conspiracy diatribe was relevant to the <laughs> inquiry into conflicts of interest. He was like, no, 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 this ties in, I promise. I know I didn't make it clear, because if I'd made it clear, then my conspiracy theories would suck. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but he, he basically, in his effort to explain, he shot himself in the foot, right? He basically told the court, hey, my bullshit theory is relevant, because the person who left Latham Watkins to work for the Department of Justice that I was talking about... Yeah, that was during the Obama administration. <laughs> so he implicitly admitted that while he le um, he left that part out of the out of the inquiry, the Durham report, he left the part out that it was the Obama White House. Uh, he 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 implicitly sort of admits it here. So even though he did, like I said, he didn't make it clear in his conflict of interest inquiry, uh, but if he had. And it was readily apparent it was during the Obama administration. There'd be nothing for the right wing media to cling to. And he wouldn't be doing his job for the former guy. So he does seem to have a point now, though, for including the bullshit in his filing. Right. That, that that's kind of a point. Like, well, the DOJ, Latham Watkins, worked for the Obama administration and they were looking at EOP Vodafones near the White House. And so that's relevant to the conflict of interest. But do you think, I mean, that's kind of a far way to go around. Do you think he'll be successful in stopping the court from striking those parts of his inquiry filing? I think that the court might be inclined to leave it in because now that he's explained, <laughs> now that he's clarified that it was during the Obama administration and the DOJ official was there from Latham Watkins, maybe it's got some relevancy. But I don't know. What do you think? I, It's it's tough to say. OK, so let's let's parse that apart. Number one, I'm pleased uh, that John Durham responded to our show, right? Because that's our footnote one argument from last week, right? We raised that. And let's be honest, Sussman's lawyers did not put that front and center. So I, I don't know, maybe there were some other outlets that went through that. But this seems like a clean up on aisle 45 answer. Mm. Now, um, it, it certainly came as a surprise to me uh, to see uh, those allegations come out, because when you read the original filing, it's footnote one to allegation. one. I mean, like we we deliberately went through to explain the prominence that that, that this occupied. And then they were like, oh, well, you know, yeah. Uh, and, and, and our argument was if it's possible for some Latham and Watkins lawyers to erect an ethical wall why isn't it possible for these latham and watkins lawyers to erect an ethical wall uh and that's not answered by this filing right saying well yeah that that guy was you know back in the obama administration okay but but our point still stands right which is if you understand that uh, this is not this is a 3000 lawyer firm that there's no Mr. Latham uh, and that, you know, what you want is to to ensure that there is no unfairness to the prior clients. This pleading doesn't seem to be driven by that. Right. So that's kind of part one. How is the motion to strike going to be received? I have to tell you, 
I, I have, uh, the only time that I have filed uh, a motion to strike, I filed it alongside a motion to dismiss. I talked a little bit about, uh, that background of the, you know, there were 90 pages of salacious allegations of someone who described their, uh, alcoholism and dementia and everything. And, you know, it was a pro se filing and, it is rule 12 F of the federal rules of civil procedure that says uh, the court may strike from a pleading any redundant, immaterial, impertinent or scandalous matter. Okay. Yeah. And, so, and, and as I was talking to you, sorry to interrupt, but you know, when yeah. I say, no, this seems sanctionable to me, like it's abuse of the courts. He's trying to try this in the media. He is trying to inflame the media and taint future juries. And and that sort of is what reminded me of the Kraken at all. And yeah. so instead of, in, I guess, in lieu of filing a sanctions motion, which might be a bridge too far and very difficult to get, then perhaps the motion to strike is sort of the 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 light version, the diet version of a sanctions motion. Do I kind of have that? No, I think that's I think that's right. Uh, it, it, I think that is very, very perceptive on a number of levels. I don't I would not. Right. If I were Sussman's lawyers, their motion to inquire into sources of potential conflicts of interest is not sanctionable. Right. Sanctionable means you filed a thing that, you know, is without basis in law or without. And, and, and again, it has to meet both of these without a good faith basis for changing the law, right? So in other words, we give wide discretion to litigants to come in and say, hey, I think it should be X. And I'm damn glad we do because right. our most right. crucial cases, right? Like Brown versus Board of Education was, you know, okay, we, we understand that the Supreme Court has said that public schools are racially segregated and that you know, separate is equal, but we think the law should be changed. Right. So you'd want a higher bar for imposing sanctions. Uh, this is not I would not move for sanctions on the basis. It's bad, and then maybe that's like, why they did a motion to strike this stuff out of here. Right. Moving to strike requires the court to say we think this material is. And, and again, those five classifications are right. An insufficient defense. Well, that's not relevant here a redundant matter, an immaterial matter, an impertinent matter, or a scandalous matter. And that can only help you in terms of sort of probing the landscape. If a, if a federal court says, yeah, we think 90% of what you said is impertinent and scandalous, well, that's good, good on you. That's better than getting sanctions yeah. on that, right? Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah, it's much better for the case, particularly if it doesn't get dismissed and proceeds to trial. Exactly right. All right, cool. Well, thank you for discussing this with me. You've answered all my questions in this week's <laughs> Durham's an Idiots segment. <laughs> we'll see what happens next week. Uh, we're going to take a quick break, and we're going to come back, and we're going to talk about another very cool ruling by Judge Emmett Ooh. Mehta, who's like, the, he's the bomb. He's on fire these days. So we'll, uh, stick around, everybody. We'll be right back. <gasps> Our driveway snowed in. Old man winter. <laughs> That's right. I fill your driveways with ice and snow. What are you going to do about it? Nothing. That's what. Stop. Mr. Plow. Get out, you lousy season. All right, I'm going. My head hurts. I have to lie down for a while. Yay! Hello, I'm Mr. Plow. Are you tired of having your hands cut off by snow blowers? And the inevitable heart attacks that come with shoveling snow? Uh-huh. Then call Klondike 53226. Call now and receive a free T-shirt. He could still surprise you. But I'm a real tightwad. Can I afford this remarkable system? Absolutely. My prices are so low, you'll think I've suffered brain damage. You are fully bonded and licensed by the city, aren't you, Mr. Plow? Shut up, boy. Ah! So remember, call Mr. Plow. That's my name. That name again is Mr. Plow. All right. Welcome back. And and Andrew, dang it. <laughs> if it wasn't already a bad legal week for Trump and the Trump Organization and his giant crotch goblins, then boy, this was the, the icing on the cake because uh. Judge Meta ruled. Uh, because, OK, so we know Swalwell. 
uh, had mm-hmm. sued Donald Trump, Donald Jr., Rudy Giuliani, and Mo Brooks under the okay. Ku Klux Klan Act. And so did a Blossing Game and another Capitol Police officer. And so did the NAACP with Benny Thompson. And, and, and right. So those were the three civil suits against Donald Trump for, you know, inciting the riot on January 6th. And, of course, Trump and Jr. and Rudy filed motions to dismiss. Mo Brooks didn't, but whatever. Uh, he can't, <laughs> he should, because as you'll learn, that would behoove him. Um but basically, Meta says, all right, uh, I've looked at everything, and the lawsuits against Donald Trump and the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers can go forward for violation of Ku Klux Klan, under the Ku Klux Klan Act, not for violation, but under the Ku Klux Klan Act. Uh, and, and we'll go through the reasons why that it's that Trump was not granted the motion to dismiss. But he also he did grant the motion to dismiss for Trump Jr., Rudy Giuliani, and said he would dismiss Mo Brooks' lawsuit if Mo Brooks would get off his butt and file a motion to dismiss. <laughs> he would, <yeah. laughs> we could find a lawyer that would just write him on write it on a napkin. Motion to dismiss, please. Uh, he'll, it'll it, it'll be granted. And so I wanted to talk a little bit about why uh, how this sort of went down and why um, Donald. Well, let's let's talk about let's first talk about why they let. Giuliani and uh, Junior and Brooks off the hook. Yeah, a lot to unpack here. So first, uh, again, in the interests of full disclosure, Amit Mehta is a former partner of mine at Zuckerman Spader, uh, who was elevated to the bench uh, after I left. Um, I don't think that means that I am, uh, uh, but I want to, fully disclose that potential conflict of interest when I'm about to praise yet another of his opinions. I mean, I, I will tell you right? when Judge Man and I were colleagues, I had the highest respect for his intellect and, uh, and ability to practice law. And that's evident uh, on the bench, right? He's a rising star. I expect him to, to, I expect to see him on the, on the DC circuit someday. Yeah. Now with that in mind, this lawsuit, this is a civil lawsuit brought by Eric Swalwell, brought by Benny Thompson and the, and the folks that you mentioned. And it is under 42 U.S.C. Section 1985, right? Um, you are probably familiar with Section 1983 claims. Those are very, very common, right? That is against a state official for violating your civil rights. Um, this is a contemporaneous statute, but this was the Ku Klux Klan Act of 1871. And basically, the reason that this was enacted was to prevent extra legal violence committed by white supremacist and vigilante groups like the KKK. Right. And so basically what Section 1985 prohibits is conspiracies that and I'm quoting from the opinion here by means of force, intimidation or threats prevent federal officers from discharging their duties or accepting or holding office and a party injured by such a conspiracy. Now think about that, right? That means a federal officer, right? Can sue any of the co-conspirators to recover damages. So this was really a, a, a pretty unprecedented lawsuit when it was filed by Eric Swalwell and Benny Thompson um, that said, uh, yeah, the president of the United States in conspiracy with the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys um, conspired to prevent us from discharging our duties to wit from certifying the 2020 election uh, and swearing in uh, Joe Biden as the uh, 46th president of the United States. Um, The bottom line, what you need to know from this lawsuit is uh, this is Judge Mehta saying with respect to Donald Trump, with respect to the Oath Keepers, with respect to the Proud Boys, the allegations in that lawsuit meet the criteria for bringing a Section 1985 claim. Um, and that is a huge ruling, right? That it, We cannot overstate how significant it is that a court said a president's speeches amount to open conspiracy with uh, vigilante groups to uh, obstruct uh, federal officials from doing their job. Mm-hmm. With a reminder that a conspiracy under this law does not require a tacit agreement. 
um, which which Judge Meta points out very very importantly. Um, and the reason that what Rudy said, you know, um, <laughs> trial by combat. Uh, he says specifically for Giuliani, trial by combat was not followed up with any particular call to action. So this speech is protected speech. It does not meet the requirements under uh, Ku Klux Klan Act. So his that's dismissed against Rudy. Rudy, you're taken off the lawsuit. Same with Junior and Brooks, who had lesser language, right? And But Meta says, now, I'm not saying they didn't help lead up the giant <laughs> conspiracy here, but it doesn't meet this particular thing. But what Trump said does does that is so significant so let's unpack that a little bit i you have to tread carefully here when you're talking about elected officials speaking out on political matters right so let's take the opposite example suppose right president elizabeth warren says i agree you know that uh the billionaires and trillionaires uh, who are out there, uh, you know, Elon Musk, right, are, uh, you know, defrauding the government, right, whatever. And then suppose uh, a left wing mob, right, storms Elon Musk's house and, you know, I don't know, burns it to the ground or whatever, right? You, you would not want, uh, I would not want a legal system that punished the president for saying, Elon Musk is an asshole, right? Right, right. Um, and held her responsible for what somebody else did, right? So there has to be a nexus, okay? And that nexus is the definition of civil conspiracy. So as you point out, right, this is from the opinions, page 61, a civil conspiracy is an agreement between two or more people to participate in an unlawful act or a lawful act in an unlawful manner. Mm -hmm. And as you point out, the agreement can be can be either express or tacit. Why can it be tacit? Right. That that means. Right. You know, uh, the mob boss. The says, wink and the nod. Yeah, exactly. Right. Like, yeah. Make sure nobody brings the weapons. You know, Rocco, get the weapons. Yeah. Right. Like, right. Uh, yeah, of Whatever course. you do, right. don't kill that guy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. I, I definitely would not want you to whack that dude. Right. Yeah, exactly. Right. So. uh Pattern jury instructions, a plaintiff need not show under 1985, need not show that the members entered into any express or formal agreement or that they directly by words spoken or in writing stated between themselves what their object or purpose was to be or their details thereof or the means by which their object of their purpose was to be accomplished. Right. So then the question is, is the call and response nature between yes. what Donald Trump did and what his lackeys did sufficient to state a conspiracy. And that's and what Judge is here. Judge said yes. Yeah. So, yeah, talk about that a little Specifically, bit. Specifically, the uh, stand back and stand by mm -hmm. was mentioned during the presidential debate. Meta brought that up. And one of the Proud Boys, was it a Proud Boy who immediately tweeted, standing by, sir, Enrico Tario, yeah. maybe? Yep. Uh, standing by, sir. Uh, so that's a call and response. Uh, they also uh, talked about president delivering a speech he understood would only aggravate an already volatile situation. Um, the one six speech itself, plausible to view as a call to collective action. Nothing repeated, uh, noting the repeated use of we, we will stop the steal. We will never give up. We will not take it anymore. We fight like hell. Uh, and we used in this context implies a common goal, which implies a civil conspiracy. So there were many different examples of how Trump, Trump's rhetoric and the call and response and the use of we and the, you know, the incitation and the we will fight like hell and we're going to march to the Capitol and I'm going to go with you. All these things in, you know, are what kept Trump on this lawsuit. His that's, own big fat mouth. Yeah, that's exactly right. So Judge Maida says, Recall, a civil conspiracy. I love that construction. He uses it a lot in this uh, opinion. Recall. A civil conspiracy need not involve an express agreement. So the fact that President Trump is not alleged to have ever met with, let alone sat down with, a proud boy or an oath keeper to hatch a plan is not dispositive. A tacit agreement is implied or indicated, but not actually expressed. That's enough. The key is that the conspirators share 
the same general conspiratorial objective or single plan, the essential nature and general scope of which is known to all the conspirators. And I love this because Judge Maida cuts to the heart of what's going on here, right? Which is Donald Trump wanted people to disrupt the Congress. In, in what ways? He didn't give a shit, right? In, in uh, violence, no violence. Ted Cruz saying, well, you know, lots of people disbelieve this because of, you know, the, uh, it doesn't matter. What he wanted was for the House and Senate to be unable on January 6th to reach the result, to to ratify the decisions of the Electoral College right, in the Senate uh, and then, you know, having the objections resolved by the House. And he didn't care what means were used. <laughs> That's the essence of a conspiracy, right? Like when when the hit, you know, when the mafia boss says, I really want you to take out A.G. And, you know, the hitman is like, well, you want me to stab her? Or do you want me to shoot her? They, you know, the mafia boss is like, I don't give a shit, right? Like, just take her out, right? They They have agreed on a general conspiratorial objective. That objective was to prevent Congress from ratifying the valid electoral vote count of the voters of the United States. <laughs> yeah. um, and uh, and I love that this is that. And we should be clear, right? This is in response to a motion to dismiss, right? This is not a court saying Donald Trump definitively right. conspired with the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers to, to overthrow democracy. No, this, this is, is like this suit could could show this. Yeah, yeah. this is Eric Swalwell and Benny Thompson have alleged plausibly, and if they can prove their facts, that they're entitled to go to a jury to show mm -hmm. that Donald Trump conspired with the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys to prevent them from carrying out their lawful duties on January 6th. That's a big deal. It's it huge. It really, really is. It's huge. Yeah. And of course, it'll and, be appealed and it'll go up and we'll, we'll yeah. see the results of that. But I have some other law geekery for you. Ooh, I Andrew. love law geekery. Yeah. And this was pointed out by Marcy Wheeler, uh -huh. uh, who says she is far more surprised that Meta also ruled it's plausible that Trump aided and abetted the actual and threatened physical assaults committed by the rioters. And here's what she says. Halberstam v. Welch remains the high water mark of the D.C. Circuit's explanation of aiding and abetting liability. The court there articulated two particular principles pertinent to this case. It observed that, quote, the fact of encouragement was enough to create joint liability under an aiding and abetting theory. But, quote, mere presence would not be sufficient. 705 F2D <laughs> at 481. Second, F second. F second. Yeah. There you go. Uh, it also said, quote, suggestive words may also be enough to create joint liability when they plant the seeds of action and are spoken by a person in an apparent position of authority. <laughs> And uh, a position of authority gives a suggested extra weight. <laughs> yeah. Quote, no, applying... I'm just saying, maybe you do me a favor yeah, here. Right? Yeah, a little extra weight. Uh, quote, applying the principles here, plaintiffs have plausibly pleaded a common law claim of assault based on an aiding and abetting theory of liability. This is the judge. A focus uh, just on the January 6th rally speech without discounting plaintiffs' other allegations gets plaintiffs there at this stage. President Trump's January 6th speech is alleged to have included suggestive words that plant the seeds of action and were spoken by a person in apparent position of authority. He was not merely present. Additionally, plaintiffs have plausibly established that, uh, and that's that language, right? Mm -hmm. That's where you don't say, the judge says so. No, the, the judge says they've plausibly established that had the president not urged rallygoers to march to the Capitol, an assault on the Capitol building would not have occurred, at least not to the scale that it did. And that is enough to make out a theory of aiding and abetting liability at the pleading stage. Yeah, I, I agree with Marcy that this is a, a surprising, uh, but again, I think well-reasoned result, right? So this, this discussion, if you're reading along in the opinion... <laughs> It's a trim 112 pages. Uh, this is the bottom of page 105 through the end. Um, but that Halberstam case that you decided is based on longstanding principles of, of torts, right? Yeah. Um, of what it counts to aid and abet. And in the law, we, we put those together in a giant book we call the restatement, right? And the idea of the restatement is it sets out sort of the, the rules that you need to know 
to figure out these kinds of concepts. So those rules are right in terms of what it means to aid and abet are uh, you look at five different factors. One, the nature of the act encouraged Two, the amount and the kind of assistance that's given. Three, the defendant's absence or present at the time of the tort. Four, his relation to the tortious actor. And five, their state of mind. And then the Halberstam court added in a sixth factor, which is the duration of the assistance provided. And then as Judge Maida works through all of those, and, you know, you can you can do this yourself. Um, they They all support an aiding and abetting theory on the violence, right? So nature of the act encouraged. Judge Maida says, the nature of the act here, violent and lawless conduct at the Capitol incited by Trump's rally speech supports a finding that President Trump substantially contributed to the underlying tort. Trump contends that this factor favors him because he admonished the crowd to be peaceful well before any violence was conducted by anyone listening to the speech, thus attenuating the temporal connection between his words and the tortious act. But that ignores the president's later words encouraging the crowd, quote, we fight, we fight like hell. And if you don't fight like hell, you're not going to have a country anymore occurring only moments before he sent rally goers on a march to the Capitol. Um, and, and I want to kind of add that that this is a distinction between I, I, I always thought that Giuliani allegations were, you know, kind of flimsy. And and look, right, Giuliani saying, right, this is like a duel. And what? yeah, look. I want to give political commentators, politicians, and even presidents that I dislike the opportunity to use metaphor to describe what they're doing, right? And politics is often described as combat and, you know, the like. This, I love that Judge Maida looks through and is like, right, Giuliani, okay, maybe. <laughs> but when you're talking about what, what Donald Trump did, um, this was not just, you know, well, I'm going to fight for you. Right? <laughs> you know, this is no, I want you to walk down the street and light shit on I'll fire. I'll go with and, you. Yeah. Yeah. Do, yeah. do you did they mention did Meta mention anything about his silence for the 180? You know how the how Congress and the January 6th committee keeps talking about 187 minutes where he didn't do anything. Uh, as as being part of aiding and abetting, or is that not? It's just what happened at the rally. So, as as so, yes, right. Um, it, as you go through, what you're trying to do is put everything in context, right? Which is right. We've talked about the encouragement. Now, encouragement can't be negative, right? That has to be affirmative. But then, you know, what is the amount and kind of assistance given? Right. And Judge Meta says President Trump resists this view, arguing that he was not even present at the time of the conduct, nor, however, did he provide any equipment information or any other kind of assistance. This ignores plaintiff's theory, which the court has found plausible, is that the president's words at the rally sparked what followed. Right. And then um, you have the question of, right, the relation to the tortfeasor. Right. Uh, in which Judge Meta notes. Uh, leaving aside that the plaintiffs have pleaded that the president did know about organized militia groups like the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys, Halberstam makes clear that the aider and abetter need not have a personal relationship with the tortfeasor to be in a position of authority. Right. So, right. They're all sitting there listening. Uh, and then the question is, right, how does all of that affect the duration of the assistance provided? Right. And that was that sixth factor that the court added that's not in the 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 longstanding, you know, restatement rules, but has been uh, applied by D.C. law. Uh, and it says, true, the rally speech itself was relatively short in duration, but the invitation to the rally came two weeks earlier. The duration is still longer if the court considers his tweets prior to that. Importantly, even President Trump admits that his sporadic tweets and speeches present a stronger argument for conspiracy liability. We could get into all of that. Um, and and so if you're looking at that, silence can extend that period of, hey, how long was he encouraging? And the answer is, right, if you if you take back, this is, this is a great Until example. Until he discouraged. Yeah. Like, this is, this is a fantastic example of where the law will take a backseat or be consonant with 
your common sense interpretations. If you like asked, how referees let a hockey fight go on. <laughs> yeah, that's a good, that's a great example. But if you asked anybody on the street, hey, when did Donald Trump think the election was stolen from him? The answer was, well, about a year beforehand, he started bitching about the fact that it was going to be stolen. Then on election night and all the way up until the election was called, he continued that. And yesterday. And then, <laughs> and then how long did that continue? Forever, right? <laughs> yeah. And were there periods of time in which, you know, he said, mm, all right. But, but like that doesn't undercut the fact that you've told and, and, and this opinion, again, I, I mentioned it's 112 pages long. A large chunk of this opinion that, that and part of what makes it so intelligent is expressing that Donald Trump orchestrated the big lie. Donald Trump repeated the big lie. He disseminated it from the top down and that everybody involved in this action. And, you know, it, it's, it's not concerned with uh, matters that are not before the court, but but it, it, it's not hard to see that pattern replicated in the Kraken lawsuits and, you know, the the call with Raffensperger, right? Like everybody who worked for this guy had to toe the same line, which was, well, obviously we won by millions of votes in every state. So any state that we lost must be the victim of fraud. So and and but not for the Republicans (laughs) that won in those states. Just for me. Yeah, just for me. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, this is truly an incredible uh, ruling. And, and Meta acknowledges in the ruling, look, I know this is unprecedented. I know this is a big <laughs> deal. Dude, I know. I checked. It's a big deal. Uh, but this is the way that it is. And, and for all the reasons stated above, and then deny, deny, as, you know, uh, grant, 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 grant. So, and then and then also like, uh, hey, Mo, Mo, Mo Brooks, if you want to, file that motion to dismiss i'll give it to you but you need to do that so uh i'm very interested to see i'm of course it's going to work its way up through the courts there's going to be appeals etc cetera, etc cetera. uh but uh when when and if it comes time for discovery and deposition it's going to be very very interesting and, and nobody expect that for, for like next week please no yeah <laughs> thank you uh two quick things right so number one uh Judge Maida's opinion is written with the Supreme Court as an audience. Of course. Yeah, of course it is. We talk about this as, you know, judgment proofing your opinion, right? Or appeal proofing your opinion. Um, And this is as expertly crafted an opinion as you can come up with, right? There is anything that is sort of low hanging fruit that a conservative court could say, well, you know, you're not, it's not 100% buttoned down on X, um is uh is avoided and the areas where um it is creating new law or or blazing new trails at least um the the case is open about that right and and in particular if this gets overturned by the supreme court it will be on the brandenburg versus ohio on the on the first amendment supreme court defense um and and that is um, there, there just isn't litigation on this matter because we don't tend to have presidents that incite rebellion from the fucking Oval Office. Um, sorry about that. No, that's um, okay. And it's probably <laughs> if, if SCOTUS dismisses it and grants Trump his dismissal, that would be why. It, it that that would be why, and they would just say, you know, we think you have to prove more. And 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 let me say, right <laughs> again. I'm pretty big defender of of free speech. I go a lot further than a lot of folks on the left. I think that, you know, a lot of hate speech, uh, you know, we 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 just uh have to come up with alternative mechanisms. Um if the Supreme Court rules uh under Brandenburg versus Ohio that it is not incitement uh for a president to spend months inculcating a belief that an election has been stolen and then go out and say, you got to fight, you got to fight like hell. And if you don't keep fighting, you're not going to have a country we, anymore. We got to yeah. fight like hell. We, let's go to the Capitol right fighting, now. I'll go with you. Yeah, we'll go. I will come with you, even though I'm lying. If that is not incitement to riot, nothing uh, is. Then, then nothing is that that's that, that is absolutely. I mean, I don't, I, you know, me, 
I am loath to say a statement that extreme, but that's the case here. Yeah, the only it other really time is. I've used that recently is with with Trump eating documents and taking fifteen boxes, and and you know the Presidential Records Act was written for that shit, uh, precisely that shit. And so if that's not a violation of the Presidential Records Act. Uh, I uh, nothing is. Uh, but I use I started off with, you know, day one of the Trump administration. Right. The the Anti-Nepotism Act was yeah. written to prevent the president from putting his worthless, stupid son in law in a position to make definitive decisions over the executive branch and see the PDB. And, <laughs> yeah. And yeah, Donald yeah. Trump said, right, right, right. But I'm going to do that anyway. Yeah. Um, you could are. not be more clear. Right. That was a Bobby Kennedy law anyway. I know. I know. I know. Uh, all right. Well, lots of stuff came out this week. I'm glad we got to cover most of it. <laughs> <laughs> There's we could go another several hours. I know. But we've already we've already hit over length. And uh, yep. So uh, we're going to we're going to close go. this and uh, and then watch Tuesday which because we record Mondays and the show comes out Wednesday. So that means Tuesday, the judge is going to dismiss the Sussman indictment. And no, like (laughs) (laughs) all of these things are going to happen, but we will talk about them next time on clean up on aisle 45. I've been Allison Gill. I'm Andrew Torres. Have a great week, everybody. Clean Up on Aisle 45 is written, researched, and produced by Allison Gill and Andrew Torres with editing by Molly Hockey. Our art and logo designer by Joel Reeder and Moxie Design Studios, and our music is composed and performed by Adam Orr. Clean Up on Aisle 45 is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, visit mswmedia.com. Season four of How We Win is here. For the past four years, we've been making history in critical elections all over the country. And last year, we made history again by expanding our majority in the Senate, beating election-denying Republicans in crucial state house races, and fighting back a non-existent red wave. But the MAGA Republicans who plotted and pardoned the attempted overthrow of our government now control the House thanks to gerrymandered maps and repressive anti-voter laws. And the chaotic spectacle we've already seen shows us just how far they will go to seize power, dismantle our government, and take away our freedoms. So the official podcast of The Persistence is back with season four. There's so much more important work ahead of us to fight for equity, justice, and our very democracy itself. We'll take you behind the lines and inside the rooms where it happens with strategy and inspiration from progressive changemakers all over the country. And we'll dig deep into the weekly news that matters most and what you can do about it with messaging and communications expert, co-founder of Way to Win, and our new co-host, Jennifer Fernandez-Ancona. So join Steve and I every Wednesday for your weekly dose of inspiration, action, and hope. I'm Steve Pearson. And I'm Jennifer Fernandez-Ancona. And And this this is is How We Win. Win. Hi, I'm Liz Winstead. I'm Moji Alawode-L. And we're the hosts of Feminist Buzzkills, the only weekly podcast dedicated to keeping you informed while making you laugh as we all navigate this post-Roe v. Wade hellscape. The Supreme Court has declared that all of our uteri are just Airbnbs for the seat of the patriarchy. So every week we break down all the garbage news from that sketchy intersection of abortion and misogyny with the abortion providers and activists we need to be hearing from right now. Plus, we talk to your favorite comedians. Because face it, if your revolution doesn't have laughter, you're doing it wrong. Feminist Buzzkills drops Fridays wherever you get your podcasts. Listen, subscribe, join us on Patreon. Because when BS is popping, we pop off.